Right, good morning, everybody. So uh, sometimes I forget what I said two weeks ago. So if I said I was going to go back, I guess I am because I, I actually uh, did have a couple things to say. So if you'll turn to Acts chapter 20, and basically this is just one of those set the scene kind of passages that I, I want to just get in our mind because I think it does highlight by way of contrast uh, what we're going to be looking at for the bulk of today, which is chapters 21, and it just speeds up, so there's no telling how far we'll get today. But um, if you'll remember, uh, Paul, of course, has been wrapping up what has been for us now many weeks uh, and months, and for what had been for Paul many months and even a few years, of this pattern of going to a new place and um, meeting some believers and encouraging them and preaching the gospel and being accused by either Jews or usually Jews uh, of causing some sort of trouble and being run out of town and so forth. But if you'll remember, one of his things right here at the end was he said, you know, I need to get back to Jerusalem. He said, I want to go back because I want to be there in time for uh, Passover. And so that had happened, uh, you know, a few weeks before. And, and so uh, he's finally uh, got together with, with what's going to be one of the last uh, peaceful moments that he's going to have. And he's, he's called the, the leaders from the church at Ephesus have come to meet him there. And, of course, we know that he was there for um, uh, several years. And, um, and he calls these leaders together. And we hear his kind of farewell to them starting in verse 31 and he says therefore be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel and you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Verse 36, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of it all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, and being sorrowful most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is a sweet, bittersweet farewell to people that he knew and loved, and they loved him, and it was supportive, and, and he felt that. And he knew that this was probably going to be one of the last times he felt that. And he gets on the boat. So, one, I guess, final thing. Um, if I could go back, let's see the verse. Now, one, one final verse. I wanted to comment just to think from a theology standpoint. Verse 28, as again, this is part of his... Goodbye. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, 
which he obtained with his own blood. In that one verse, we have reference to all the members of the Trinity. We have the Holy Spirit. We have uh, the mention of God. And then, of course, with his own blood could only be referring to Jesus. And just just to, to let that uh, sink in that even as Paul has been teaching, he's been learning as well. And has so in, immersed himself in, in the truth that what he's been taught and learned that he is able to just pull all of those elements, really pulling all of the elements of all of history into that one, that one sentence even. And, you know, it's been said, and I'm not going to say it very eloquently, but in order to explain something, in a really brief statement, you have to know it really, really well. And and that's evidence of what Paul did. So uh, Trent, the word Trinity, of course, isn't in the Bible, but there is uh, definitely evidence to that concept. And in your margin, you might just want to write that to the side, one of those verses that we encounter that does attest to the reality of the Trinity, This this mysterious way that God is, is uh, three in one. All right, chapter 21, verse one. And, and let me say, I, I, I'm not, I thought about just condensing certain parts of this because it's, a, it's an account, it's a, it's a travelogue of what's happening, but every time I decide to figure out what to skip, I'm like, oh, I can't skip that because it's part of the story. So we're just gonna, we're just gonna, go through it and forgive me for reading such an extensive passage and I'll just stop every so often. (laughs) And when we had parted from them and set sail, so this is Luke back in the we narrative and he's partnered there with him. We came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And if you have your, if you have your little thing, your little map, Paul's third missionary journey, um, you can see uh, these little, uh, laps along the way, and, and some are, um, uh, you know, a significant journey, these little skips from port to port to port. This is basically, he's jumping along the coast, uh, trying to get to where he's going, and finally, as we see in verse 2, they get a big ship that can really go and make some ground and doesn't have to hug so closely to the coast, so that's what's fixing to happen in verse 2. It says, And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, so Phoenicia was um, all the way on the, the coast where he wanted to go, um, on that uh, coast along uh, Israel there. So he's uh, going to make some good progress here. It says, Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they, that is those disciples that were there at Tyre, were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. This is one of what we'll see as many warnings about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Paul, don't go there. Verse 5. When our days there were ended, we departed, we went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. 
When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. We greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. One commentator made the, the point that uh, this was Philip, one of the original seven, uh, what some have called deacons. We've talked about that that may not have necessarily been the case, but one of the seven who had been picked to help serve the early church and, and to administrate and, and so forth. We also know that Stephen was one of the seven as well, right? So Philip and Stephen were, were colleagues in, in that early church. This was Stephen who had been set up to be stoned by Paul. So now Paul, here we are some 15 or so years later, uh, going to stay at Philip's house. And as one commentator said, this must have been an interesting meeting. Someone kills your best friend and 15 years later you're having a sleepover. That's unusual to say the least, right? Um, certainly uh, a God thing. Verse 9, he had four, this is Philip, that is, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Uh, you'll remember in Acts chapter 2, we heard in the prophecy about the Holy Spirit, and after the Holy Spirit comes, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So here's early fulfillment of that. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and delivers him from the hands of the Gentiles. Well, this is interesting. If you turn back to Acts chapter 11, this is not the first time we've encountered Agabus. Chapter 11, verse 27-ish. Now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus. He stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So, not only was Agabus a prophet, but this was a prophet that was believable. This was a true prophet um, who had correctly predicted the famine, and so much so that, uh, and they believed him so much that, you know, a few years before, um, on the basis of his prophecy, the church had to decided to send, uh, to send aid uh, by way of Paul. So Paul knew Agabus, and now we hear this prophecy as he takes Paul's own belt, binds up his own hands and feet, and says, This says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and delivers him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. 
So th this is really an interesting passage. So this is the second uh, warning that Paul has that it is not going to go well for you. It is not going to go well for you. And, you know, you have to wonder, well, what was Paul thinking? Because he himself had been warned, right, in visions and other ways not to go here or to go there. And he had, he had obeyed those warnings and he had no doubt been spared some grief. And now he has what is the second warning, and, and Luke is careful to say that, that both of these warnings were by the Holy Spirit that Paul is going to encounter some trouble. Uh, and then finally, they just, they had prevailed on him so long, they just gave up. And I guess you could argue whether Paul was, you know, passionate and committed or just stubborn and, you know, hard-hearted. I, I guess, you know, we can ponder that. But it is, at the very least, uh, I think, interesting. And, and as we think of those kind of de the decision points that we have all had at various points in our life, it's I think it's interesting. And um, one of the things I, I thought about, and I guess is, might as well mention it here, is, you know, how often do we hear the phrase, well, hindsight's twenty twenty. I don't think it is. I think even in hindsight, I don't even understand some of the things that happened. I mean, hindsight's not even twenty twenty for us here, looking back on, did he even make the right call? I don't know. Um, things did not go well for him. Agabus was right, uh, as we'll see. Uh, it says, let the will of the Lord be done. And by, I guess by definition, it was within the sovereign will of God, at least, because that is, in fact, what happened. Spoiler alert, he does make it to Jerusalem, and it doesn't go well. Um, so, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, uh, it's it's certainly it's certainly interesting, and at least it it does confirm what Paul is all about, and who he's all about, and and what his purpose is. And I think perhaps one of the one of the main reasons that we get this level of detail um, is so it could really testify as to who Paul is, why he was doing what he was doing, and so forth. Um, another commentator made the point, and, and you'll kind of see this, that um, as the closer we get to Jerusalem, the detail increases and the narrative kind of slows down, right? We jumped from port to port to port. I'm sure that took a couple of weeks and, and then, you know, it's just like in the Gospels where it's like that last week of Jesus takes up a number of chapters. Same thing here. As he gets to Jerusalem, it's really going to drag out. We're going to get a lot of detail. And and why is that? Um, I think a lot of it is because it it is a way of, in effect, answering Paul's critics, exonerating Paul uh, to a degree, and really establishing for the sake of history and for all of those whose lives he has touched as to his 
authenticity about why I was there and what if, what his motives were. And, and I had not thought about it before, but one commentator made the, the point, well, who was, who was Luke writing for? Do you remember? Theophilus. You know, if Theophilus has decided to bankroll the way, this big operation, he probably wanted to be reassured that, that his money was going to where he wanted it to go. Uh, because even if Paul was in prison, I'm sure he was supporting other people. You kind of get the idea that Theophilus was an extremely wealthy benefactor. So I think in, in part, in, in a small scale, Luke was writing for Theophilus to say, this is a guy, he's authentic. You know, even when people warned him, he stayed true to the mission, right? So when you hear bad stuff about Paul, let me tell you, you can believe him. So that's just one way of um, kind of filtering some of the events that we're going to see. Verse 15, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So this, uh, this guy Manasseh, uh, and I don't know how to say his name, but just make it up. Um, one commentator made the point that this house that he's going to stay at is the last time that he's going to be free. It's the last place where he'll stay where he's not under some sort of arrest, either literally in chains or certainly um, under arrest. Now we make it to Jerusalem, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Remember, James was one of the elders of the church there in Jerusalem. Uh, many years have passed since... Um, the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 19, after greeting him, he relayed one by one, um, this is Paul, that is, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. What's happening here is that Paul has been, he's been a missionary. And he's coming back to give a report. We have missionaries here among us who have done that very thing, who have come back, and they have been away from home, you might say. And, and uh, the conditions always change. And so, so whether of warning or whether by way of information, but Paul is fixing to get a wake-up call as to as to what he's facing now that he's back and what's happened is all these times that Paul has been fighting this notion of uh, what happens to Jewish Christians and do they still need to follow the law and what about Gentiles and all that that's still what's happening that is still what's happening so word has been filtering back remember all those Jews he encountered along the way and all the ones that were causing trouble and raising a ruckus and everything well guess what they wanted to go back to Jerusalem for the, for the Passover as well right remember how all the Jews would kind of make, make it back so now all these people have come back too some of them have probably beat Paul there so that's the context 
He says, it says, they said to him, so this collection of the elders, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those of us who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. So he's saying, oh, by the way, Paul, welcome back. Uh, but here's what people have been saying about you. Had Paul been saying those things? No. He was telling the Gentiles they didn't have to do those things, but Paul was always in temple, and he always went to the synagogue. Anyway, false charges, as we know. Verse 22, he says, What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Now, in verse 23, we hear this plan. This sounds like a very human plan. <laughs> okay. Um, in fact, scholars have said this is so weird that we're not really sure it really even happened. I mean, I believe it because it's, it's, it's in the Bible, so I, I believe that happened. But, I mean, it's going to seem, number one, really weird. Number two, hard to believe that Paul went along with it. Here we go. Here's the plan. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. I'll explain this in a second. <laughs> Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as far as the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent out a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Remember, we talked about all this in the Galatians. Verse 26. Well, let me pause there. So, you remember the Nazarite vow? For a, Paul, for a while, Paul took one. Nazarite vow, you don't cut your hair. Uh, you don't touch anything dead. You um, don't eat, uh, drink wine. Um, you take a vow for some reason. And you remember there was a reference at one point that Paul had taken this vow, and then he completed his vow. Well, it was possible, and, and if you go to the, when I post the, the uh, podcast, some of my background information, there's a big section about this that explains it uh, much better than I'm fixing to. But you could, if you wanted to wrap up your vow early, the law would allow you to associate yourselves with a group that had already followed all of the process. So you could come in kind of at the last minute, and if you found a group that was willing to accept you as part of their group, then you could complete the Nazarite vow according to the law, and, um, and it, everything would be good. So they found four guys who were wrapping all this up, wrapping up their vow. They were at the point where they were going to have their heads shaven, and they said, yeah, um, Paul, you can come in with us, but you've got to pay the expenses. Well, part of the expenses were um, a lot of livestock that had to be sacrificed for each person. So this wasn't this wasn't just a cheap thing, um, you know. And that would pay the priests and blah blah blah. I'm sure it was a little bit of a racket, but in any event, um, so that's that's the plan, right? Okay, here's four guys with really long hair who have finished up their vows. I'm going to go hang out with them, and as long as I pay for their bulls and goats and stuff like that, then they'll let me finish up my vow. 
that we can all get our head shaved together and then everything will be good and everybody will know I really am a Jew because I go in for all this stuff. Who else but a believing Jew would, would do this? That's my very coarse paraphrase. Verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Verse 27 says, When the seven days were almost completed, blah, blah, blah. So what happened is, when you went in and had your head shaved and everything got sacrificed, you still weren't completely done for seven more days, and you couldn't be defiled anymore. So you basically submitted yourself in quarantine lest you contact anything that would make you have to start all over again. So that's the seven days that they're talking about. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, remember those Jews from Asia? They were always stirring up trouble. Well, here they are. Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. All right, so did the plan work? No. He wasn't even through with the seven days. He's got to be thinking, I knew this wasn't going to work. But <laughs> he, it's, just, it's kind of funny to me. They see him in the temple. He's supposed to be off limits in quarantine. And they just see him and, and they doesn't matter to them. You know, don't let, don't let uh, our opinion get in the way of the facts or vice versa, the facts get in the way of the opinion. They start stirring up trouble, stir up the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! <laughs> There's a crisis. This is a man who's teaching everyone. Now, here's, a, here's the thing. When you are in an argument, when you are in a disagreement, whether with, well, with anyone, one of the classic things that happens is what? It's called overgeneralization. You start to say, well, you always do this. Well, no. Are you never doing No. <laughs> so just look at all these absolutes that they're doing. This man who is teaching everyone everywhere, <laughs> he's omniscient, everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. He's against all, all the people, the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they, that is these rabble-rousers from Asia, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they thought that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the, to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So apparently there was a... Um, uh, an outpost of Roman guard uh, right off the temple. And, um, and so they hear what's going on. Um, and so the tribune, uh, the guy in charge, verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. And some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And he, as he couldn't learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. We've talked about mobs before. And this is the craziest mob yet. 
away with him. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, can I say something to you? And the tribune says, do you know Greek? He said, wait a minute, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul said the equivalent of, no, 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 that wasn't me. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not the Egyptian who led 4,000 assassins. No, yes, but I do speak Greek now that you mention it. Um, Paul said, no, I'm a, group, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. This is way far from Egypt. Uh, a citizen of no obscure city. In other words, Tarsus is a happening place, as you know, and I'm a citizen there. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. So, here we have Paul, um, you know, on his way to be taken back to the barracks. Basically, the tribune was like, I don't know what's going on. I can't make sense out of this. Let's get him back, and I'll just beat it out of him and figure out what the truth is. Um, that's what was fixing to happen, and, and Paul says, wait a minute, um, let me talk to these people, and then they realized, okay, he's got some language skills, he sounds like a reasonable guy, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him talk, and I, I think the Tribune was maybe hoping, okay, well, if I hear his side of the story, maybe I'll understand what's going on. It was interesting, apparently there was this gesture back in the day, and it was this, two fingers curled in, and you would, whenever you did this, it meant it's time for me to speak. That was the thing. Remember that, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Two small fingers curled in, the other three held out. And be on the lookout for this among your politicians. We'll just see. <laughs> and you're supposed to, great respect is supposed to ensue. At least it did for Paul. Um, and we'll go on just a little further. It says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And they, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, that is Aramaic, they became even more quiet. And he said, I don't know, maybe we'll quit a little bit early because this is going to start a new thing. So you can read from 21 to 28 in about 30 minutes. Easy. And it, it just... It, it just keeps going from one thing to the next. There's not a lot of pause for big theological discourse, although Luke gets some in here. But we're going to hear Paul defend himself a number of times. And just kind of remember uh, who would be hearing about this. So Paul is, in essence, talking by way of Luke to Theophilus. He's talking to the Jerusalem church who had been hearing these accusations and maybe they have their own doubts. He's being heard by zealots who maybe were good intention but just misguided and, and just didn't know the truth about Paul. Um, so everybody kind of has their own angle on this. So just a couple closing things to think about. Um, one commentator made this point and my synopsis of this is that the real world is never as black and white as we want it to be right this pastor Wright says speaking for a moment as a church leader I take great comfort in Paul's uncomfortable position 
because it's where we often find ourselves. Zealots to the left of us, zealots to the right of us, and zealots in front of us, they volley and thunder their absolute and undoubted truths, while those of us who have to find a way through with real people who are struggling to live real lives and loyalty to the real Jesus know, but we realize we can't simply explain to them, realize we simply cannot explain to such people that things are more complicated than that. In other words, when everybody is so crazy one way or the other, you stop listening to reason and you stop realizing that the real world is simply not as black and white as you think. It's a lot of decisions that are usually not as straightforward as you as you think. You know, the the concept, you know, when you when you see how the sausage is being made, you heard that comment. How many people have actually seen sausage being made? Um, the same thing happens if you've ever been in a committee meeting in a church. How many people have been in a committee meeting? It's never as simple as you think. It's never as pretty as you think. It's never what you want to put in your report, right? So, so as we try to be, you know, as, as forthright as we can possibly be to what we really believe in, um, sometimes we have to acknowledge that it's just not as clear-cut as, as we might think. Um, one other comment. It's hard to predict what a mob will do, right? So Paul, who rightly knew his skills of oration were pretty good, he thought, well, I know this whole, I know this whole uh, shave-your-head thing didn't work, right? And they weren't convinced by that. But if you just give me a chance to talk to him, then I can convince him. He couldn't convince them. There's no predicting what people are going to think. This is done partially applied, but I thought the story was so good about the little kid who accompanied his parents to Africa for a few weeks, ate with the locals, saw things he would never see except in National Geographic, saw amazing things. So he comes back after the big extended trip with his family and they say, what was the most amazing thing that you saw while you were in Africa? And he said, granddad can take his teeth out. <laughs> you can't predict what people are going to hear. And, and, and Paul just, he, he, he didn't see it going this way. He really thought that he was going to be able to convince him, but he couldn't. So we'll pick up there uh, with uh, me or you, one of us, Daddy, next week. Uh, so let's pray. Father, as we try to make uh, black and white decisions in this very gray world, or maybe gray decisions in what seems to be a black and white world, um, give us guidance through your Holy Spirit. Uh, we thank you for the way that we can share um, 